so we're doing part three of our series, um, When in Rome. Um, the reason for this series is, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, or don't. So Paul writes a letter, which is a bit, it's, well, it's not schizophrenic, the message is, is, is intact and is in agreement with itself, but he's speaking to two different groups of people. So pretty much in every argument he puts forward, sometimes when you're reading it, you're like, ah, migraine. And, and that's because of the two very different and distinct groups. So the, the Jewish believers that started off this church and were going for it, Gentiles coming in, not understanding the, the, the context or the pretext to the context of like the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew tradition and all that kind of stuff. And so these guys who were originally there are talking about stuff they don't really get and in some senses imposing things on them that aren't really necessary, but he can't throw them out um, because it's not good to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so he's trying to get them to distinguish and see what's bathwater and what's baby. Um, so a lot of what he says is he pitches at both groups like we've been saying the last couple of weeks. Today, we're gonna try and achieve a lot more than we have in the previous weeks, which may be over ambitious for me because I've pretty much done very little of the book. There's like 16 chapters. We're in our third week of a four week series and we're on chapter five. It doesn't bode well for us. Probably not gonna complete this book might give up next week um, but for now I'm going to try I'm going to try and and run through a couple of bits but the ultimate thing about today and what we're looking at is ultimately about hope so there's been key themes through different chapters and I guess from five to eight really it's 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 about hope hope is the main thing which is a good thing to talk about this Sunday I guess because Friday obviously the events um, in Paris they raise questions about hope and they put hope to the test. And um, there's some stuff that we'll be looking at in these passages which will kind of speak to that kind of context and that will speak kind of into it and to challenge us because sometimes things happen in life that make you question your default position. So very often we have an idea, we have an ideology and we'll share it with people but when the ideology and the idea comes under threat or when there's pressure put on it, sometimes we don't stick with an ideology very long. And um, Paul's given them some really strong, powerful um, teaching and ideas. But um, ultimately, as we talked about last week, he used Abraham as an illustration. And Abraham, he talks about being justified by faith. And faith isn't an ideology. Faith is real. You believe in something and you do it. It's a verb. Believing is a verb, by the way. So when you believe something, you don't do it. You don't believe it. <laughs> it it's, it's an action. It's a doing word. It's a verb. So um, a lot of times Christians talk about what they believe in but then don't necessarily always do it. And we're not talking about necessarily the occasions where you slip up. I'm talking about just don't do it. So we talk about loving our community and we do nothing to love our community. Talk about loving our neighbor. We, haven't, we don't know who our neighbor is for us and we don't know how we're gonna love them. We have no strategy, we have no attempt, we give no funds to it, we give no time to it and we do no actions. But we'll say we believe in loving our neighbor. That's. That's, that's got to be listed under insanity. Uh, it's got to be. And I'm not talking about the workout. That is just literally pure insanity on its own and makes no sense. And so when he talked about Abraham, he, he moves from just a theological argument of doctrine to um, this guy believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so when we have the Abraham story that we looked at last week through what Paul says in Romans, we go, wow, okay, this is something to believe, this is something to get behind. That's something the Gentile audience would have loved because, as I said before, the reason they've bought into this whole movement is because 
the catchy slogan, Jesus is Lord, which opposed Caesar is Lord. Caesar forced you to submit. Jesus said, I give my life for you. And they were like, what? This is insane. I've never heard of a God, deity, flesh and blood, giving his life for us. I'm in. And so then when they hear of Abraham and a guy who just believed God, and that was reckoned as righteousness, and, and moving in that, they're like, oh, this is a totally better way to live. This is what it means to be alive. This is awesome. So that's why they brought in. So in chapter five, this is following on from what we looked at last week. So it, with the very thought in mind, because they're not separate, with in mind um, what it means to live by faith, he comes in next with this. So you get peace from that. So in chapter five, verse one, we're going to read down to verse 11 for the first part. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here we see something really powerful and something which needs to be very real for us because if we look on a global scale at the moment, people are talking a lot about Paris, but actually there are a lot of global issues affecting Christians um, exclusively that the media isn't talking about. So the media didn't talk about the genocide in Iraq of Christians that were massacred and the women that were constantly raped and used as um, sex slaves um, by, by ISIS. Uh, no one's talked about that. They talked about a particular, particular ethnic group within the context, but didn't highlight Christians. What they also failed to highlight is that Boko Haram in northern Nigeria has actually killed more Christians than ISIS in the last year and a bit. And no one is talking about Nigeria. Um, no one really seems to care about this issue. But this isn't new and this isn't exclusive because if we were to take the last 2,000 years and we were to look at martyrdom, we would find out that actually more Christians have been martyred in the last 115 years than in the rest of the 2,000 put together. So um, martyrdom's, martyrdom is, um, the struggle is real. And it, it's real for a lot of people that share some of the values that we share. This passage for them is real because Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness and then we transition to this and the first thing he's talking about is he's talking about hope. And I think in those sorts of contexts, when you talk about hope, you talk about something that is very powerful and something that is very real. And when we talk about in our context, we have hope, what, to make it through the month, pay the bills, um, hope for a promotion, uh, hope for an upgrade, on our mobile phone contract. <laughs> hope that it comes before two years. Um, we hope for some really important stuff. Um, but for other people, hope is, a, hope is a big deal. And actually for us, hope can be more than what we make it. Hope can be more than the material things that we buy into. Hope can be for change within our community. Hope can be the cease of racial abuse here and abroad. Hope can be that our children will live in a better tomorrow. Hope can be that we will be different tomorrow. Hope can be that we will be a part of building hope rather than crushing people's hopes. And in the Christian context, we have been very good at crushing people's hopes. 
We've been very good at writing off someone's hope and their dream because of some of their actions and some of their behavioural patterns and because of their class, because of their race, because of their background, because of a lot of things about them. And so when we look at this kind of hope, we see something powerful. And so when Paul writes this, he's writing this to a people who um, persecution at different stages has, has been quite real, um, as real as it has been for those other people around our world that I've spoken about currently. So through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace, God, God power, God ability in which we stand. So the very fact they're able to stand is by his grace. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Something you and I struggle to relate to. We relate to sufferings as uh, debt, probably, in a lot of cases. Um, we might face some anxiety at work, some new pressures, um, things like that. Obviously, we do go through brutal things. We can be the victim of a serious, heinous crime within our context. But ultimately speaking, compared to the rest of the world, or not the rest of the world, compared to some parts of the world, um, our idea of suffering is significantly different. Um, but for these guys, suffering was real. Uh, not that I'm saying anyone here doesn't suffer. I'm sure we all do. I don't know everyone's lives, obviously. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and that is an amazing thing, that actually sometimes when we face tough times, um, Paul wants us to think about endurance. And I think often in Christianity, this is the reason why we're not even going to get through this book. <laughs> I, I'm literally, I'm like five verses in and I'm still going on it. Um, but literally, when we go through something, when we face an issue, um, we don't tend to look in the Christian faith at endurance. When we face an issue, we look at, why isn't this solved yet? Where is God in the midst of this? I've been here for 21 seconds. God sucks. That's how we tend to think of things. That's not what Paul writes about. He writes about, yeah, great, suffering. He goes, um, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. No, we don't. Um, knowing that suffering produces endurance. He goes, this is great. I know I'm suffering right now, but um, this is a fantastic opportunity because I'm going to endure it. I'm going to grow. I'm not tapping out. I'm going to push on through this. And endurance is going to be brilliant. Endurance is going to produce character in me. I'm going to be a better person at the end of this. And character produces hope. People with good character are full of hope, um, which makes me question my character because I'm not as full of hope as I'd like to be. And hope does not put us to shame. That's a key thing. If you experience shame in your life and if you're in a place of shame, then that's an evident sign for me about my own life that actually hope isn't alive and kicking to the levels that I would like it to be. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Wow, while we were enemies, while we, we were enemies, he saved us, opposed to his values, opposed to his kingdom, opposed to his ideologies, part of the problem part of the problem he saved us how much more now that we are turning away 
turning towards him, will he save us from the situations we face while we were enemies? And I know full well for me what it's like to be an enemy of God. I have played the role many a time. And I'm sure you have if you're not fronting. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is like such a powerful message, but he's really tying in to his Gentile um, fraction that he's speaking to. Because the ideology is Caesar and that the empire is established through the death of its enemies. So if Caesar wasn't Lord, you ended up on two sticks of wood and you were killed. And here it says, well, not many people would die for a a righteous person. Not many people would die for a good person. Some would for a good person. But what about for sinners? So it shows the revolution again that they bought into. So here Paul is trying to entice the Gentile audience there because the reason they've bought in is this very reason that Jesus is like, what? You guys are going to die for this? No way. I'll totally go up on that cross in your place. I will oppose the very structure and the very fear that you have and I'll save you and I'll redeem you from it. And so they've bought into this um, and this is a spectacular part of the revolution. Now Paul's going to switch his speech now straight away in verse 12 and speak much more to his Hebrew audience. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, the death, but also he's grabbing onto both, through one man. So death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So he's going, you're making the law a big deal. Well, actually, we can go before the law and talk about the same repercussions and and issues. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespasses, trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, one man, if, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and, the life, and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what Paul's doing here is they've been talking a lot about the law and they've been talking about it in the last few chapters. Here he's saying, well, okay, even if we just put the law to one side a moment, we move before that, we have the same scenario. 
there. And if we compare that to here and now, so he's basically saying you don't need to impose this Jewish law on these guys because sin reigned um, without the law anyway. And so these guys have come from a context without the law and they've seen that sin reigned in their lives that way. So the law doesn't bring about any solution, but Jesus brings about solution. So actually you don't need to impose these guys under this, but um, they just need to follow Jesus and they need to trust in him. And that's kind of what Paul's arguing. And so he's saying under the law, grace just blew up. I mean, sin blew up. Now, grace has just, has just like swallowed that hole. And then he's going to talk about in chapter 6, he's going to talk about um, what we would call like grace abuse. Um, so like, great, grace is everywhere. Let's just do what the heck we want. You know, woo. Um, and that's kind of like the, the, the hippie-ish argument that can come out of what he's just said. And so he wants to bring balance to that. What shall we then say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin for now if we have died with christ we believe also live with him we know that christ being raised from the dead will never die again death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died he died to sin once and for all but the life he lives he lives to god so that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to god in christ jesus let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but be present but present yourselves to god as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to god as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace then he's going to um speak once again, he's going he's, he's, he's gonna to hit on um, connecting with the, the Gentile audience. What then are we to sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness i'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations but for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness but what fruit were you getting at the time um, from the things that you, which you are now ashamed. The end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now he's talking a lot about slavery there. And the reason he's talking about slavery is it's just this perfect picture that he's able to do in a way that connects with them. So when you and I think about slavery, all we ever think about is the transatlantic slave trade. Um, that's just how we see slavery now. It's like the, our point of reference is always that. But that isn't like that doesn't epitomize the history of slavery that is a small window in slavery it's horrific it's brutal it's wrong it's disgusting horrible time in human history bang it's there but actually 
that's not the only type of slavery there was. So when Paul opens this letter, he, he straight away says it. He says, Paul, and it translates, and we have here, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. But in the notes at the bottom, it has bondservant. So he says, Paul, bondservant of Christ Jesus. And here he does this whole illustration of, of being a slave. He talks about being a slave to sin and a slave to God. Now, there's a transition between the two. Now, when he calls himself a bondservant, um, this is still kind of a, a slavery position, but it, it's nothing like um, the transatlantic slave trade. So you would have been a slave in a negative sense, but they can become this point where you either have earned your freedom, and not in the sense like the mafia do, where they take your passport away and you can never actually earn it back. Like you're trying to earn it back, but you can't earn it back because there's just the, the and also in India in the caste system, where the, the financial interest that goes up on what you own um, goes so high, you can never buy back your slavery. It wasn't like that. It was, you got into debt, you end up in a situation, but you could buy yourself um, out of it eventually. And it wasn't the same permanent level and the way they were treated was differently. But ultimately what would happen is you could become free, but continue to work for your master. You'd be a bond servant. So you transition from being a slave to a bond servant. What that would mean is, you could live in the house like you did as a slave, but you'd be a free person, you'd earn your wage, and you would choose to live with them in submission to them, following after the situation you're in. Now, if you think about the argument he's been giving, that God created everything, he talks about sin reigning, he talks about the law being under the law, but the law holding you in a negative position. Then when you transition from that position as a slave to a bond servant, what you have is you were trapped in this position, you were held down, but here, the system was working against you. When you transition across the other side, the system is working for you and you're receiving the fruit and the benefit of it. So as he's saying this, to the Gentile audience that are listening, the Romans that are there, they're like, oh, wow. That's why Paul introduced himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ because he sees that he was in slavery and now he's been free, but he works for the master who set him free and he chooses to remain in his house and he chooses to live in a fruitful system that is benefiting him at the position he's in. And he chooses to submit himself under the Lordship of Jesus Christ because there is good fruit that comes out of being submissive and sitting under the Lord Jesus Christ. So he takes an image, which for you and I, when we're reading this, we're kind of twitching like that. But when they're reading this, they're hearing it going, oh, I totally get it. I've had friends who've been in this situation I have neighbors have been in the situation and I've seen the transformation in their lives. Oh, I get it. Oh, and so with God, we, oh, we, were, we were trapped in that. Oh, we're free in that. And now we follow in his footsteps with his name, a part of his family. Oh, that's awesome. Because we weren't, we weren't Hebrews. And now we're a part of, oh, oh, this is great. Oh yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm totally in. I want to be a bond servant of Jesus as well. And so when he says this, he's, 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 he's so how he writes this letter is, is, is mind-blowing. The layers and the way he connects with the different groups, speaking with the same message of the same traditions and bring it into one is literally what this series is about because it's when in Rome do as the Romans do or don't do. So it's embracing what we embrace in our culture and, and connecting with it, but also rejecting what we need to reject in our culture. But it's also seeing the transition we need to make in our culture. Now, so often when it comes to different ways of expressing our faith with um, other people, is we come in a way nothing like this letter. We, 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 if you grow up in a Christian church tradition, when you come and speak to someone who's not of that tradition about Jesus, they're looking at you like, you make no sense. Because we speak to them like the book of Romans 
but without any of the stuff that engages with the Gentiles. So if Paul had just spoken to the Hebrew people from the tradition he knows, with the message he had straight at them, half of that church, or maybe more, because we don't know what the percentage was, but there were a lot of Gentiles at the time, would have been sitting there going like, say what? No idea. And they'd have to rely on the guys who are trying to put them under teachings they don't need to be under. They'd have to rely on them to trust them, so they're not subjected to stuff they don't need to be subjected to. Because they wouldn't hear it, they wouldn't get it. So when you and I come along and we're like, boom, let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we just start boom, 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 and they're sitting there like, what? What are you talking about? I don't have a clue what you're on about. That makes, that makes no sense to me. I remember I used to do youth work in a school, and I decided I was going to prophesy that day. And it's like, if you prophesy how people prophesy in some of the churches to a bunch of school kids, do you think any of those kids come back to my lunch club? They're not coming back. That guy, that guy's on smack. That's what they're gonna think. They think I'm a smackhead. You can't just walk in there like that. But I decided that's it. I'm prophesying today. So do you know what I did? They had mainly boys, a couple of girls, and um, I said, do you know what you're gonna, you know what we're gonna do today? Like, I was like, okay, cool. I'm gonna, yeah. Um, I did this session talks about sharing words about edification, exhortation, consolation. Um, consolation. But I changed those words a bit. But that's what Paul talks about being prophecy in, in, in scriptures. This is what we're going to do. So we're going to go out of here, man. We're going to, we're going to build people up. So you're going to find that kid that is just a, a nightmare in class. He's having a mare of a day. And you're going to grab him straight off that class in the corridor. And you're going to say to him, son, it's like you're free nil down in your life at half time. Get your head up, chin up, look up forward, mate. Head up, go for it. You could do this. And um, they all went out and did that. And um, the next week I came in and I went up to the lads. Ah, oh, so how did it go? One of the boys goes, I got chinned in the face. I was like, oh no. They go, no. Um, he didn't, he was lying. He thought it was funny, uh, but he didn't. He said he went up to the naughtiest kid in his class and he said, I went up to him and I did the football drill that you told me to do. It's like, you're free nil down your life, sunshine. You could turn it around second half, head up rest of the day, push out, go for it. No nonsense, head down, do your work. The kids go, I will, I will do my work. I will, I will. Come on, let's have it. And I was sitting there, and that was the feedback I got from them. But I could have done the Christian thing, which I've grown up hearing in churches. I can see a river. <laughs> and there is the mountain of God. He is our refuge and our strength. Let that river wash over you and renew you. And you will rise on the wings of the eagles. I could have done that. Those guys, the only river they've seen is the River Thames. <laughs> if they've ever travelled into central London, which they probably have done like, what, once a year. They haven't seen any mountains, they don't live in Cape Town. And they've only seen an eagle at London Zoo. And when they have, it's attached to a thing and can't just fly off somewhere. <laughs> so when the prophets spoke about these things, they took images that were really real and everyone saw every day. When Jesus talked about a lot of his imagery, he's walking past it at the time. But you and I are like, I can see a river. Wow. I see a mountain. What? Where? <laughs> North England, maybe. We're in London. Doesn't make any sense. So when Paul writes this, he takes into consideration who he's writing to. You and I, sadly, don't do that too well. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteousness that acquired in the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to the flesh, but not who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is pe- is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of God does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit that dwells in you. So, what we have... Um, is we started off with hope being the current theme. In six, and you'll have to take my word for it in seven, grace is the theme. So we have a hope. So we had faith. Faith led us to have hope. Hope is placed in the grace, the power of God, which is at work in us, guess what? Through his spirit, which is why Paul talks about the spirit now in chapter eight. And then I'm going to skip straight ahead to 26 to 20 uh, to 30, and then I'm going to finish for today. So I'm cutting huge chunks of this out just so we can get through. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be first among many brothers. And those whom he also predestined, he called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those who also justified, he also glorified. So he's talking here about the spirit of God that works in us. He's talking about a much bigger issue, which is predestination which we're not going to get into today as we close things up you'd be happy to know because we'll be here for like two hours not gonna do that but um i love this passage and because for me this passage from my own personal story and narrative completely reinforces the last thing that i was talking about which i want to re-emphasize and end on which is that very thing about how we communicate who god is and how not to communicate who god is now romans 8 verse 28 was the first verse in the bible i ever learned off by heart and i learned it off by heart because the church i went to that was the first sunday where we were basically told if we didn't learn the memory verse we would be getting beat with a belt when we when we got back the next week so with all irony i actually learned all things work together for good for those who love god who are called according to his plans and purposes uh, at the threat of being beat i don't think the person who picked that verse as they paired that up with such a violent threat had thought that through um, it worked though I did not forget it and I knew every bible verse for the next week because I never I never wanted Smackdown versus Raw on a Sunday um, but you can see how sometimes some people um, can take a really beautiful wonderful message which should be enough to inspire you and feel like they need to add a bit of the law to it you know what I mean so I don't, I don't know I don't know I think this guy maybe only read one half of Romans and skipped through every part which was to the Gentile audience because man um, there was one person that week who did get licks uh, the next week who didn't quite do the homework and um, I will never forget that imagery 
uh, yeah, not very good, not very positive. But you know what? I don't think we have anyone in this church who literally is going to beat someone with a belt this week because they didn't embrace the same opinion as them. But what you might find is we might be tempted to use a verbal belt. We might be tempted to remind someone who probably doesn't even need reminding of their faults, their failures. We might see someone we know who's living in a particular situation that's come from a church background and we just want to lay in those body blows and remind them of the law of God, remind them of his righteousness. And um, well, yeah, remind them of his righteousness. It's always great. We should always remind people of his righteousness. Um, his righteousness is that he guides us in his path for his namesake. That's what he does. He guides us in the path of righteousness for his namesake. God is so righteous that while we were sinners, he loved us and he died for us. And that is the righteousness we need of God that we need to remind people of. That while you are a sinner, Christ came and he died for you. While you were doing this, isn't it great that in the midst of this story and this narrative you're going through that hurts so much, isn't it so great that it's as if right this moment as you're going through that, Jesus died for that, for that, for that moment. He did that for that. That's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's the righteousness that you and I receive. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not the belt. It's not the law. The good news is that Christ came flesh and blood and he died for our situation, our sin, our struggle, our pain. And if he did that when we were sinners, how much more will he do while we're standing in the very grace that he's given to us? He'll do so much more. And that is the good news and the gospel that we see in Romans. We are not under a beating. 